Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and for this episode, we've partnered with Basecamp Connect Blog to bring you a special podcast entitled Espresso with an Emergency Manager, in which we'll be interviewing IAEM Canada President Greg Selecki to hear about his career path in emergency management from frontline firefighter to emergency management guru. We'll also be chatting briefly about the International Association of Emergency Managers and how the association might just help you find your way in your career. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast. Current, relevant, Canadian. So as I mentioned, uh, for this episode, we're partnering up with the Basecamp Connect blog. Uh, if you haven't heard of Basecamp Connect, it is primarily a uh, emergency communications solution company, but they also run a blog, which is brilliantly managed by uh, Annie O'Farrell. So if you haven't checked it out, you really should. It has all sorts of information for emergency managers, including some interesting tools of the trade, news, and every once in a while... Uh, she writes uh, a written interview about an emergency management person of interest. Now, I'll be honest, when she first approached me to do a, a sort of joint venture, I thought to myself, this isn't really our jam. We're really more of an evidence-based uh, educational podcast and not really about just interviewing people on their own um, experiences or career paths. But then I thought... Maybe that's one of the things that's missing in emergency management as a profession is some really substantial mentorship. Maybe hearing about the career path and experiences of established emergency management professionals is exactly what we need. So with that in mind, and because this is an espresso with an emergency manager episode, let me just open up my espresso and we'll get on with the interview with a man who's seen it all, Greg Selecki. All right. Oops. Uh, hello, my name is Greg Selecki. I'm the president of IAEM Canada and also um, one of the consultants at Sanders Consulting. Greg, thank you so much for this uh, epic interview. Can I start off by asking you what made you want to enter disaster management? Yeah, when I look back at it, uh, um, it, it's now almost part of a calling because my career really started off as a firefighter in British Columbia before moving into Calgary. And over the years, uh, probably about half of my career there, maybe 13 years, I went through the teams of high angle rescue, hazardous materials, um, even the water rescue side of it. and. At one point, uh, I was thinking, well, maybe I could move into some other area, and 9-11 happened. When I looked at uh, the devastation and especially what had happened to the fire department, I just had a lot of questions of, of why, and that drew me into disaster management uh, first off in, in the city of Calgary. Was it what you thought it would be, and how did your expectations differ from what it ended up being? For me, I thought it was going to be... Uh, a narrow focus like I didn't know what to expect really and then when I stepped into it um, I sure learned quickly how big uh, emergency management was disaster management is and uh, including the business continuity aspects so um, it, it was it was interesting uh, in my path that I had the the some experience I, I think first about firsthand about what uh, disasters are like um, what major emergencies are, 
and then having to catch up uh, uh, on the educational portion of it and learn more about it uh, moving forward. So it was, uh, the difference was almost that where uh, I think my focus was pretty narrow and then became quite large as, as to what uh, emergency management really is. So you moved from the, the response agency to a bit more of a, it sounds like a planning role. How, what was your, your path uh, through your career to lead you to where you are now? Yeah, it was exactly that, that emergency service firefighter role. And then for, for me, moving into uh, disaster services in the city, I was placed into the water services sector. And a huge learning for me there because, I mean, they have a business to run and it's about the uh, extraction, production and movement of water and, and, and providing it for people. And uh, I had to look at things like um, physical security, flooding, um, pathogens in the water, and, and make sure all those plans were in place, but also keeping in mind that it was a business. So um, the, the path started off as, as the emergency services and then moved more into uh, planning um, for all those different hazards. And, and more importantly, it was the work that I did in the water sector that was noticed and recognized by the federal government. And uh, I ended up sitting on a cross-sector forum for um, the development of a national framework on critical infrastructure representing the water sector. So working with all those other sector representatives, bringing that that information back to uh, the city and municipally, and um, then delving into some of the standards development. Uh, I'd worked on the CSA standards and also uh, some ISO standards internationally um, for many years, uh, bringing that all back around to a couple disasters or more that I'd been involved with was when I sort of thought, okay, uh, what else is there now if you've been involved with some of the largest disasters in Canadian history? I just felt I had something uh, more to offer and something more to learn and it was uh, a tough decision for me to take that step out of municipal government after 27 years and, and head into the private, private sector, which is where I am now. So you were heavily involved in planning for critical infrastructure. In your opinion, what are some key elements of, of a good emergency plan? Holistically, it's, it's making sure that it's part of a larger program. I, I mentioned briefly about... Uh, uh, the CSA standards and the ISO standards and, and looking at what those are as a program and, and where the ERP fits in there. So I think that's really important. The other part is the plan itself. Uh, really, you, you can't do a plan unless you've taken the step before the foundation or the building block of the high risk. So the hazard identification and the risk assessment is essential to having a good plan in place. So now that you've moved into the private sector, what's one of the more challenging parts of your job? I think essentially one of the big uh, um, items that I, that I learned uh, from being on a fire ground, then being in an incident command post, then an emergency operations center, then a recovery ops center, or being with the executives in their boardroom was the disconnect. And I'm finding that municipalities, whether it's municipalities, the public private sector, big corporations, uh, not always do these uh, groups understand their role and responsibility when something goes boom. So the major emergency and the, the, the disaster, it's all relative to the size of the corporation, but there are certain roles and responsibilities that 
these folks may not be aware of. And that's more of what I'm trying to do is kind of bridge those gaps, understanding that they're there. Uh, and, and, it, and it's it's that um, awareness that want to ensure that those folks uh, have after we go in and work with them. How do you bring those sorts of plans and mechanisms to life? How do you implement that successfully? I think the biggest thing is after you've got those plans, it's it's great um, to have to go through the research and development um, interviews, information gathering, connecting all the dots from policies, plans, uh, what what they have in place. Uh, but the strength really does come from exercising and validating those plans. So I, I think the biggest part is really that. We, you can have a lot of that in place, but we really need to have um, the, the practicing of it. Uh, and, and if you don't have that leadership at different levels to commit to that, then uh, the plan really doesn't uh, do a heck of a lot for you. So really finding that, uh, that champion within the organization and then exercising the plans that exist. That's right. So you mentioned uh, earlier that you've been involved in several emergency operations centers, uh, as even as an emergency operations center manager. Uh, what do you think is the biggest communication challenge? As this is something that always comes up and again and again and again in the management of emergencies. Yeah, there's a couple of them for sure. Uh, you look at the human um, uh, portion of it versus the technological side and. I think from a human perspective, as far as communications go, it's it's being aware of um, your limitations and as well as your uh, staff's limitations or the people that are in that EOC. And what I mean by that is um, we just naturally uh, are going to freeze fight or flight, right? I, I think we've heard that before when something bad happens. And uh, a group out of Harvard, uh, the NPLI, have, have done a lot of research on this, and we all experience uh, that when we know there's an emergency. And, and sometimes we get used to it. Sometimes it doesn't affect, it, affect us as much. Sometimes um, we only feel that for a couple seconds. But if you're not used to it, uh, you, you don't know how you're going to react. So understanding that in yourself, uh, when there is a major emergency or disaster, that, okay, I'm in this state right now, I've got to get out of it, I've got to get through my methodologies and processes, and also noticing it within your staff. Are they breaking down? Are they making proper decisions? Are they actually being able to action what's going on? I think that's something to be really aware of from a communication perspective with folks that are in that EOC. On the other hand, the technology is just incredible um, the, the, at the speed of which social media is, is moving and how we're being able to communicate just on a normal day-to-day -day basis, it, it brings its challenges into the EOC. I always talk about how 15 years ago, you know, the phones literally might be ringing off the hook and you're taking messages and passing that off to the people or the person or the representative that would need to action it. <clears throat> now you've got a hundred tweets a second coming into your EOC or, or out on the web and, how are you supposed to manage that? And uh, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on that as well from uh, social media mm -hmm. and the uh, uh, virtual operation uh, teams that are out there. But uh, uh, those are the two areas that are, are, are prominent right now from a communications perspective. Are there any techniques that you use in the EOC to help those around you communicate effectively or to help communication happen? <laughs> 
I, I think it uh, boils down to leadership in an EOC. If, if you've got a strong emergency manager or an incident commander at an incident command post, you're going to be able to move through whatever it is. And by strong, what I mean is um, being able to recognize that uh, uh, amygdala hijack, the freeze fight or flight, um, recognize when you or someone else is in the basement, but also being able to identify the problems and, and go through that decision-making model. And th there's lots out there. Uh, in, in Canada, the one of the you know, main ones we use in the incident command system is the, the P-Post, right? So bringing you back to that uh, process and model of problem solving. So what's the problem? What are my priorities, objectives, strategies, and tactics, right? And, and making sure you're constantly going back to that and, and having some sort of objective to satisfy the problem and then broadcasting that out to everybody that's in the EOC so that they can then share the information within the EOC with their team members and then outside of the EOC to the site if need be um, and, 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 and just coming back to those types of uh, decision-making models. So just taking the time to really sort out what the problem is that you have to solve in the first place instead of the chicken with the head cut off syndrome, it sounds like. That's right, because there's so many things that are going to be coming at you. You've got to, um, you, you've got to, you've got to look at your priorities, right? Uh, the life safety side, the property, the environment, uh, financial impacts, and so on. But uh, um, as long as you're going back to those priorities and figuring out the problems and keeping that cycle moving, you're, you're definitely going to be able to move ahead and satisfy uh, whatever's occurring. So let's switch gears here a little bit. You're the president of IAM Canada. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about IAM? Yeah, it's uh, um, the largest emergency management organization in Canada. And uh, we've got about 450 members across Canada, 9,000 across the world. Uh, in Canada, we're only about 15 years old as our own Canadian council. Uh, the U.S. is 65 years old and um, really was created out of FEMA way back when so there's a really strong relationship there and what I'm hoping to do is is to uh, recreate in the Canadian way that relationship uh, with Public Safety Canada and all our other provincial organizations that are out there um, we've got uh, a really strong uh, board in place right now which is helping to move a lot of our initiatives forward uh, we've got uh, committees in place uh, with their own directors and their own teams, um, such as uh, communications, marketing, membership, the professional development side of it, and um, engagement and the governance, and also membership in every province and territory. So uh, the, the, we're constantly growing. We're averaging about 10 new members a month. We're also the only certification and training organization um, uh, that offers uh, competency-based, I'd say, um, certification and recognition, as opposed to some others that uh, pro provide courses. Um, we're also non-for-profit, so uh, that helps us uh, provide that certification and also the governance model to maintain it throughout your career. So in practice, how does IAM help uh, its members and emergency management in general? I think no matter what level you're at in your career, um, if you're new to your um, career and, and the profession, uh, just like I was coming out of the fire service, 
uh, one of the first groups that I found was um, IAEM, and that really provided me with a lot of resources and tools that I could use to help develop. Uh, I became a certified emergency manager uh, quite soon, uh, or as soon as I could, after uh, recognizing that they were um, uh, able to certify and, and look because they look at uh, you know not just experience but skills, training, um, and, and other competencies that you would have to identify that. And then if, if you're kind of an intermediate in your career, there's a lot of networking and learning opportunities. Um, as I mentioned, moving into your CEM or your AEM to get the certification, and then in, in your advanced career, which I'd say I'm at now, uh, there's a great opportunity. Uh, to keep building um, emergency management as a profession uh, across the country and really throughout the world. Um, and it provides those leadership opportunities for you to move into a, a role with a committee or a role as a director. Um, internationally, we work with uh, different groups trying to develop the associations in their countries, but also look at um, the United Nations disaster risk re reduction and, and some of the groups that they have to help combined for a better response internationally um, where we can help for that public-private partnership. Greg, thanks so much for telling us about your career path and some of the uh, options and opportunities available through IEM. Uh, before we finish off this interview, I've got some rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? All right. All, All right. right. What's the most important quality an emergency manager should have? Uh, I think it's that middle leadership, which uh, entails uh, understanding how to provide that um, leadership at all levels and, and recognition of, of um, coming out of the basement. Ah, coming out of the basement. I like that. Which tools and applications would you recommend to other emergency managers for their toolbox? Uh, a whiteboard and a marker. <laughs> nice. How do you keep up to date? What sort of publications do you track? What sort of blogs do you read? Yeah, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time because I'm uh, a, a bit of an alumni with that uh, NPLI, the National Preparedness Leadership Institute uh, out of Harvard. I definitely follow a lot of those folks that have done the research for uh, emergency management and, and crisis management. And then on the uh, other side of it, uh, I'm always looking through Wired Magazine because they're ahead of the game on a lot of different areas. All right. Uh, what's your favorite ICS position? Well, besides being, uh, I think, the leadership role, uh, communications has to be my favorite one. Um, that's one of the ones that I wouldn't want to leave home without. Favorite hazard? Wow. Uh, favorite hazard? Um, I guess probably flooding since I've had so much experience with it. Uh, favorite disaster phase? Uh, I, I guess it would have to be the response side of it still. Fair enough. It's hard to uh, to beat the sort of in the moment feeling of the response phase. Yeah, that's true. When you do deploy or when you are responding, uh, what can't you live without? What do you bring with you? I think I'd have to go back to my uh, whiteboard and marker with that one. <laughs> the whiteboard and marker. Nice. And finally, in your own words and from your own experience, what is disaster management really all about? It's the people side of it. Um, considering that disasters are largely social, uh, we have to always be aware of, of, of that impact. Um, and then uh, our response is also based on the human condition. So people are affected, and then you've got people helping people. So... 
um, you can't get away from that aspect at all. Greg, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being once again on Epic Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. If you'd like to find out more or check out a transcribed version of this uh, interview, you should check out Basecamp Connect. So basecampconnect.com, click on their blog section, and it'll be there fairly soon. Uh, And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at epic underscore underscore podcast or at www.epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening.